Hello, divers. Welcome to Mysteries of the Deep. I'm Tom Feeney, podcaster and purveyor of pop culture propaganda, searching beneath the surface of what seems to be the ordinary, the mundane, the pedestrian. But before we get to all that, there is a milestone that I would like to address. If you've seen the thumbnail image for this episode, you have no doubt seen that this marks the 200th episode of the Deep Dive podcast. This humble little endeavor began in late 2018 BC. That's before COVID. I was working for a tiny little startup company whose logo looks like a piece of fruit with a bite taken out of it. Yes, that one. Some of my co-workers had started their own podcasts, none of which I believe are still around. Uh, I had considered creating a podcast of my own, but had no big idea that I felt would be interesting or unique enough to justify such a project. And that all changed when a co-worker of mine approached me wanting to know if I would be interested in doing a podcast with them. Now, if you're a long-time listener, first of all, thank you. But that co-worker was, of course, none other than my original co-host, Manda, a.k.a. The Mandalorian. And after much discussion, we decided to focus on somewhat obscure movies available on streaming services. Movies you might never have known you wanted to see on, you know, platforms like Netflix or Hulu or Tubi or things like that. So, we recorded our first episode in October of 2018, inside of a Panera Bread. It was bad. Like, really bad. I mean, not the Panera, but the actual episode. And for your listening displeasure, for the very first time anywhere, here is a clip from that dreadful test show. We're going to do a little icebreaker to kind of give you more of an idea of, of what we're into as movie lovers. So, uh, Amanda, if you'd like to start, um, what was your topic of discussion? Well, I thought maybe since everyone loves movies, I'm going to be my top favorite movies of ever all time. Okay. Since we're in the water, would it be like a non-icebreaker, but like a Okay, so we agreed. Now, it was never published for blatantly obvious reasons, but Manda knew we had something cool and fun happening. You know, we, we were a generation apart in age, and that difference, plus our mutual obsession with all things pop culture, made for a winning team with, I felt, really great on-air chemistry. So we decided to press on, and on, and on, until that nasty little pandemic changed everything. Suddenly, it became almost impossible for Amanda and I to record episodes here in Studio D. We tried having Amanda on via the phone, but it just wasn't the same. So I pivoted to a rotating series of four different podcasts, each with a different theme. First, there was the Deep Dive Microcast, then this one, Mysteries of the Deep, and then finally, 
Hollywood hype and pilot error. Now, Amanda would return occasionally until both scheduling and distance made it so we were unable to continue as co-hosts. But I decided to trudge on by myself. Why? Well, because besides the occasional magazine article that I write, this is my only creative outlet, and I feel a certain obligation to keep it going. Not just to our listeners, both of you, uh, but to myself as well. And I am very proud of the 200 episodes that have been released to the world. That alone is, to me, quite an accomplishment. Uh, Do we have a huge number of listeners? No. But does it really matter? Well, here are some facts. 90% of podcasts don't get past episode 3. That's 1.8 million who quit. Of the 200,000 left, 90% will quit after 20 episodes. That's another 180,000 gone. So to be in the top 1% of podcasts in the world, you only need to publish 21 episodes of your podcast. And we've done 10 times that many. So to me, merely having 200 episodes to share with you all is an accomplishment. And I share that with Manda, as well as everyone who has helped get to this point. People like Jay Colin Tony, Ryan Blaney, and Bob Acorn for creating music for the show. And of course, my family for their unending support and for humoring me when I talk incessantly about the podcast. As for how long I will keep doing this, I really don't know. You know, for now, the Deep Dive Podcast is an enjoyable endeavor. And if you enjoy it too, well, that means the world. Thank you. Okay, okay, enough of this maudlin crap. Let's get on with the show. In 1977, a film that no one thought would even earn enough box office to make back its production budget opened in a scant 32 theaters, mostly in major metropolitan areas. That film went on to change not only movie history, but have a huge impact on the entire globe. And if you don't know what I'm referring to, welcome to Earth. The original Star Wars, no episode four, no A New Hope, exploded onto the scene like a Death Star after a proton torpedo was shot into a thermal exhaust port. The immense success was a lifesaver for the one studio that dared to take a chance on the weird space fantasy movie. 20th Century Fox was literally delivered from bankruptcy by two droids, a Wookiee, and a few dysfunctional humans. The studio, facing financial difficulties at the time, agreed to finance Star Wars with a relatively modest budget compared to other big-budget productions of that era. And so, Star Wars went on to become the highest-grossing film of its time, surpassing anyone's wildest expectations. The unprecedented success of Star Wars not only saved 20th Century Fox from imminent bankruptcy, 
but also injected new life into the entire film industry. The movie's popularity led to a massive merchandising boom, setting a new standard for franchise marketing. Star Wars-themed toys, clothing, and other merchandise flooded the market, generating substantial revenue for both the studio and Lucasfilm. Star Wars' impact extended beyond the box office, influencing the way studios approached filmmaking and marketing. Hollywood began to recognize the potential of blockbuster franchises and embraced the idea of merchandising tie-ins to maximize profits. Star Wars' success laid the foundation for the modern blockbuster model, transforming the film industry into a business driven by high-concept, tentpole productions. On the other side of the country, far away from sunny Southern California, were the Manhattan offices of Marvel Comics. Since the introduction of teenage hero Spider-Man, co-created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, Marvel had begun the process of creating a shared universe where characters could appear in each other's titles and frequently did. That coupled with the more humanistic approach to the characters' motivations, flaws, and personalities created an ever-growing and enthusiastic fan base. Marvel's chief rival, DC Comics, was the big dog in the market with iconic heroes like Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman in their stable of heroes. But Marvel was gunning for the top spot. It took a decade, but in 1972, Marvel overtook DC in comic book sales. That same year, the legendary Stan Lee was named publisher and president of Marvel. Things were looking up for the self-described house of ideas, but it wouldn't last. A perfect storm of trouble was brewing, and it would impact the entire comic book industry. At the beginning of the 1970s, a single issue of a comic book cost 15 cents. That's 15 cents. By the end of the decade, the price would increase dramatically to 40 cents. Now that might not sound like a lot, but for kids, it meant being able to buy two comics for a dollar in 1980 instead of six comics for a dollar in 1970. So what happened? Well, by the mid-70s, uh, there was a time when inflation jumped by double digits, and there was a gasoline shortage. That created a severe economic recession that impacted almost all Americans and American businesses, even comic books. Huge increases in the cost of paper and ink took a giant bite out of the publishing industry. 
sales began to slump. And soon, Marvel was looking bankruptcy squarely in the eye of Agamotto. Meanwhile, back on the West Coast, a young filmmaker named George Lucas was trying to drum up some interest in his latest project. Even though his last movie, the coming-of-age drama American Graffiti, was a massive success, Lucas found it difficult to get any movie studios to take his next idea seriously. Maybe it was the title. The Star Wars, Episode One: The Adventures of the Star Killer. I think it's kind of catchy, but a movie about aliens, robots, and a galactic empire wasn't gonna fly in an era of serious, i.e. downbeat films like Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, and Taxi Driver. Undeterred, Lucas pushed forward, convinced his strange space saga was worth making. One of the smartest business decisions Lucas made during this time was hiring a man named Charles Lippincott to be head of marketing and publicity for Lucasfilm. Back then, movies didn't have a ton of licensed merchandise. No one at the time was clamoring for a scale model die-cast metal replica of Robert De Niro's taxi cab from Taxi Driver. You know, I should probably check to see if that's a real thing now. Hold on a second. And it is. A company called Greenlight Hollywood makes a 164th scale checker taxi cab from the movie. Wow. Jodie Foster not included. Hmm. Anyway, one of the first things that the new publicity head Lippincott did was contact companies and see if they might be interested in making official Star Wars products. Now, general interest was low, but one idea Lippincott had was to contact Marvel and see if they wanted to create a comic book adaptation of the film. Now, Lippincott may or may not have known this at the time, but George Lucas had already approached Marvel himself about an adaptation. They declined. More specifically, publisher Stan Lee declined. Lippincott, however, went, well, not over Stan Lee's head, but kind of around it. So instead, he met with one of the editors and writers for Marvel, Roy Thomas. Lippincott met with Thomas, who was a diehard sci-fi fan, and made a detailed presentation about Star Wars. Roy Thomas was shown concept art and storyboards, which convinced him a comic book version could be successful. Now, Stan Lee, on the other hand, still wasn't convinced. So, Lee brokered a pretty sweet deal for Marvel. He got Lucas to agree that Marvel would not have to pay any licensing fees unless the Star Wars comic book sold over 100,000 copies per issue. Any revenue Marvel got up to that point would be all theirs. Lee never thought that that was a possibility, so it was a win either way. The first issue of Marvel's Star Wars adaptation hit newsstands in April of 1977, a couple of months before the film came out in theaters. Sales not only exceeded expectations, it obliterated them. That first issue sold over one million copies, as did issue two and three, and all the way up until the movie adaptation was finished with issue number six. 
The revenue the series generated was a much needed infusion of cash for Marvel. It kept them out of financial ruin and allowed the company to ride out the recession until the comic book industry bounced back to profitability during the 1980s. So, Star Wars saved Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, and the Hulk, among others. And there was one problem, however. The Star Wars comic was so successful, Marvel wanted to keep the title going. Now, George Lucas did see the benefit of having the comic book carry on in the Star Wars universe. So beginning with issue seven, all new stories were published. I mean, great, right? Well, not necessarily for Lucas, who didn't like the stories the comics were telling. That led to strict rules set by Lucas as to what the stories could, and more importantly, could not portray. Little things, like characters' backstories or any Vader-Luke confrontations. Since this happened between Star Wars and its immediate sequel, The Empire Strikes Back, Lucas did not want the comics to contradict what he had planned for the films. Now, despite those limitations, Marvel's original Star Wars comic had a very successful run, lasting 107 issues. The title ceased publication in 1986. After the Walt Disney Company acquired Lucasfilm in 2012 for an unimaginable $4 billion, it was revealed that Marvel Comics would regain the license to create Star Wars comics. That might have had something to do with another multi-billion dollar Disney purchase. Marvel Entertainment, the parent company of Marvel Comics. It may be the superhero deal of the decade, and the winner appears to be Disney. The company is spending $4 billion to buy Marvel, getting control of Spider-Man, Iron Man, and the X-Men, among other big-ticket characters in the movies, and branding that goes with them. Disney now has, in addition to its warm and fuzzy characters and Main Street USA appeal, characters like Wolverine from X-Men and Iron Man, superheroes with a PG-13 edge to market to teens and young adults. Well, there's definitely global appeal uh, to these characters and stories, as we've seen with Disney, and that's one of the uh, attractive elements of, uh, of Marvel to us. Now, with both Marvel and Lucasfilm under the Disney umbrella, Star Wars comics were being produced at an impressive rate. Impressive. Most impressive. Releasing hundreds of new stories set in the Star Wars universe. That's so nice when siblings get along. Now, Marvel would face bankruptcy and insolvency again in the 1990s before the Disney acquisition, uh, but that's another show. Thanks for listening. If this is the first time you've heard this podcast, check out our past episodes available on almost all podcast providers and subscribe so you don't miss a single one. If you like what you hear, write a review. We would love to know what you think. Or drop us a line at the deep dive podcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter slash X feeds. You can find links to those in our awesome t-shirt store in the bio of our Instagram page. All clips used in this podcast are meant for educational purposes only and not to infringe on existing copyrights. Mysteries of the Deep is part of the Deep Dive Podcast family and a production of Automaton Studios. <laughs>